Today on Sharp Scratch, you'll learn why the mortuary is hard to find, how to prevent an undertaker from getting a shock, and why the coroner isn't as scary as you think. You're listening to Sharp Scratch, episode 14, Documenting Death. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection, where we get med students, new doctors and expert guests all into the same room to talk about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor, but that you won't really learn at medical school. I'm Lauren Inez Mulder and I'm a fifth year med student at Cambridge and I'm delighted to welcome Sharp Scratch panellists Declan and Anna. Would you like to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Declan. I'm a current academic FY1 doctor working in Newcastle. Um, I'm currently doing research at the moment, so I've not had a huge amount of experience with patient deaths, but looking forward to seeing what our expert can uh, shine <laughs> some light on. Hi everyone, I'm Anna and I'm a final year medical student at King's and I'm also the editorial scholar here at BMJ and I'm very much looking forward to quizzing our expert guest all about his job, which sounds very interesting. <laughs> all right, well over to our expert guest then. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Robert Cast. I'm a anatomical pathology technologist and I work in King's College Hospital Mortuary. So now that you've said that, can we just call you an APT? Yeah, APT is much easier. It rolls off the tongue, tongue a bit easier. <laughs> So today we're talking about death and it's a huge part of our profession and we think about it a lot, we talk about it a lot and I think a lot of us, I don't know about you, but I have to ask myself, you know, am I cut out for this? Can I cope with it? And that's what we talked about last episode. Uh, but actually our job demands more of us than coping and getting on mm-hmm. with the rest of our job. Actually, we've got more duties to our patients and their families after a patient death and we need to be competent in those admin skills too. So I'm thinking about things like pronouncing death and certifying death. So, Declan, you've had, like, what, 10 weekend shifts? Yeah, something like that. And uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but have you ever had to pronounce or certify death? I have not. I'm such a great doctor that um, none of my patients <laughs> 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 I don't think that's the reason. But, no, I've been fortunate not to yet, but I think I'm probably the only F1 doctor that has not had to do that yet. So, so it's quite common for it's very common, doctors yeah, to be yeah. called upon yeah. to do that kind of thing. Yeah, I have walked onto the ward in the morning and someone was there 15 minutes before me and they had to certify the death. So within the 10 shifts that I've been working, someone has died and an F1 has had to do it. Okay. So do you feel, I mean, actually, maybe I've had more experience of certifying death than you have. I don't know. Did you ever see it during med school or anything like that? No, not really. I mean, I prepared for my finals. Yeah. Uh, I spent a day, it was on one of my first placements, I found a really friendly junior doctor and I just stuck to them like glue. And mm. one of the things they did that morning was to go and uh, go sort of to this room in the kind of basement to see some patients who died and then to fill out some certificates. So I got a few good tips then. Uh, it was about two years ago, but uh, <laughs> I'll see if I can drag some tips. I think as a med student, yeah. it is really good to try and get that experience though. It's something that I kind of regret um, not being proactive in in getting that experience because I mean when I now go and see my first patient I will be having a book in one hand my stethoscope (laughs) around my neck and I'll be following it yeah yeah it was it was really good we sort of went downstairs 
it was quite a long walk i remember it wasn't in the basement exactly it was just kind of it was like in a block that was like seemed to be it's added normally to the hidden away hospital. isn't it from the rest of the hospital yeah mm-hmm. um the corridors looked a lot less beautiful yeah the main corridors, <laughs> for example. and then we went into that sort of room and it did actually look a bit like one of those rooms on tv with uh like a, a wall full of metal drawers yeah. and then you can like pull on a handle mm. and there's a couple of shelves in there um and then they saw their patients there uh sort of confirm the identity yeah. and so on before they went on to fill in these very very beautiful like mm. calligraphic certificates it was really sort of fine bound legal documents so just surprisingly beautiful yeah really pretty yeah <laughs> <laughs> Anna how about you have you encountered anything like that um so I worked in a hospice when I was um applying for medical school and I did once end up going in their mortuary there which was sort of euphemistically referred to as Rose Cottage I don't know if that's a common thing Um, but also I did a quality improvement project um, last year on improving the uptake of electronic death certification in the Princess Royal Hospital in Bromley Mm, Glad Um, to hear it You can can do things electrically it doesn't just have to be those beautiful papers It's a supplementary thing. Mm. So the legal document is the death certificate. Um, You're nodding like you. Well, I'm happy to hear it because from the mortuary side of things, it's really it's really good for us to see the digital certificates. It gives us a lot of information when we're trying to track down doctors for the cremation forms and things like that. So having that digital record and having the doctor's name and the cause of death is really is really good for us. Mm. Do you you sort of like lose sight of the... Well, in our our trust, the departments are separate. So we have a bereavement department and a mortuary. So the bereavement would handle the death certification, the the MCCD, the medical cause of death certificate. And then the mortuary would handle the cremation cremation forms and actually finding the doctors to come down and do them. Mm. So, you know, there is that kind of breakdown sometimes. So if we can just go to a digital record and see the doctor that, you know, filled out the MCCD and have the cause of death there at least we have it there ready for them when they come to the mortuary so it makes it a lot easier i see well you'll be pleased to know that our project did actually improve by quite a lot the doctors doing the electronic death certificate at the proof so well done Anna. (laughs) what can i say (laughs) um we put up a poster (laughs) so what questions do you guys have what is it that you know that you don't know So I think for me, it's mainly, I think the reason why it's been brought to my attention that Mm -hmm. I don't know these things is because my sister's just qualified as a nurse and she's sort of spoken about the care that they give the deceased on the ward. Um, And I'd never really thought about, I sort of was aware of the fact that I would have to go and pronounce the death and fill in the certificate. But that sort of bit in between, like, do I need to call someone to Mm. come and get the patient or am I allowed to take any lines out you know what if they've been resuscitated and there's kind of mess everywhere and yeah of course how much am I allowed to interfere with it yeah um they're all really good questions yeah yeah for sure and and how about you Declan do you feel what what are you kind of asking yourself ahead of having to do it for the first time to be honest I'm quite embarrassed by the lack of knowledge of any of this quite (laughs) quite (laughs) honestly I mean kind of echoing what Anna said about what does the doctor actually do you mentioned messing at does the doctor help with that does a nurse help with that does does someone come Mm. down and Mm. help to sort that out someone mysterious comes from somewhere and just does it for us and then I guess you then go in if the patient's still there I imagine the doctor goes into that room and determines whether they're dead or not Mm. and then they go somewhere and it all just happens. It's all a mystery. And as an F1, it's pretty bad to not know that information. Mm. But without having the experience of actually doing it myself yeah. and someone walking me through it, 
the logistics yeah. of actually doing this. The first time you do it, the first time you pronounce death, for example, that you'll have your book in one hand, your stethoscope in the other. Yeah. Mm. You'll sort of be going over the things that you have learnt for your exams yeah. just to make sure you do it really properly when you get to it. Mm-hmm. So there are certain elements of this that we do learn at med school that med school does try and prepare us for. Mm. And then around it, there's a sort of practical how does it fit in the real life <laughs> of a working screen, hospital. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from speaking to the other F1s that I know have done it, a lot of it's like you're listening for X number of minutes. Is it two, mm. three minutes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it varies. From it's been a long test. time since yeah. I've done exams. Yeah. Um, and it's like you hear little sounds. You're always kind of second guessing yourself whether you're actually hearing any breath sounds, blah, blah, blah. And I think the whole first experience is you're probably quite over the top with your diagnosing death or not. I guess one thing that I'm also wondering that I'll just add is that yeah. I hope I would never, ever get it wrong to pronounce someone dead when they're not. That seems like something out of a film. But I mean, yeah. what if I, no, I'm, I'm thinking more of the more mundane things like what if I fill in a form wrong? What if yeah. I yeah. write in the notes wrong? Uh, what happens next and the implications of yeah. that I guess for the family yeah exactly so I'd, I'd be curious to find a bit more about that so here we have two medical students and a new doctor who are completely in the dark ready to <laughs> learn and we've got you Robert ready yes. to teach us so yeah. can you tell us about what your job is and how you work alongside doctors yeah so as an APT uh, a small part of our role is um, assisting pathologists with the post-mortem examinations it's kind of I guess the most interesting part of our work because you know everyone wants to see the postmortem and you know that you associate the postmortem with the mortuary but the role is a, much, a lot more than that it's a, a more about the documentation the duty of care of patients when they uh, you know are deceased and you know having all the forms ready for the the final funeral arrangements uh, depending on what the family want so you know the doctors have a huge role to play in that and you know we try and put the message across that there is a duty of care even after the patient is deceased especially with things like the death certificate and cremation forms and things like that obviously king's is a major trauma center so we get a lot of young deaths um and as part of our role as apts uh, sometimes we have to come out of out of hours and do viewings for family members um i can remember a you know a young male who had been involved in a rtc and his family What's had that come, for, sorry? Uh, road traffic collision okay um where he was driven and sadly passed away mm. um when it's an out of hours death you know it's very hard the apts have to meet the family directly you know usually at a hospital health desk or things like that explain the situation you know keep nothing under the covers because you know they are grieving there's no yeah. point in making assumptions or probabilities but you have to give them all the information um, in this case, because it's out of hours, any viewings must be behind glass. Um, you know, they can't physically touch their loved one, unfortunately, um, just because we don't know the circumstances of the death. We don't know what caused the trauma, what caused the accident. And, you know, the patients may have things like uh, ET tubes in situ, NG tubes. You know, they might have traumatic injuries to their face. All that must be, you know, must be told to them so mm. that when they go into the viewing rooms, everything's there on the table for them and that is very hard but you learn to to deal with that kind of grieving family and assess how they're going to react in those circumstances so I think in that case the experience that I had worked with me and to my advantage so you know the grieving mother was very upset that she couldn't touch her touch her son yeah, but when you ex- explain the scenario and the situation and you know why that is a possibility and why we have to wait, you know, for the coroner and, you know, for the offices to open during normal working times and explain then maybe on the Monday then that they can touch them and, you know, they can say their their goodbyes properly with no 
lines in situ or anything mm. like that. I think that's very important. Mm. I never really appreciated that. Like I knew that doctors talked to grieving families about how their loved one might have died, but yes. I didn't appreciate that actually there's other staff who have yeah really big roles to play yeah, in that part of yeah. life as well. So like as mortuary staff, we do have, you know, it's mainly done through bereavement, but on occasion we do have direct family calling us or making queries and knowing how long the cremation forms are going to take or, you know, can we see our loved one or, you know, what, what state they're in really, you know, because some of them are in our care for a lot of months. So, yeah, it's it's really important that we are able to deal with that. And it's the same for doctors as well. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Mm. I mean, from this point on, are you going to be able to help us figure out all that we need to know to be <laughs> Hopefully. solid yeah. doctors at that part of yeah, the journey as well? Yeah, Again, it's based a lot of on, on experience and, you know, working up, you know, obviously you haven't experienced any deaths yet, no, yet. but it's things like you said, you uh, do a lot of weekend shifts. Yeah. How do you fill out the MCCD if there's no offices open? Mm. You know, that, would, no, <laughs> that would be yeah. <laughs> real trouble. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, balancing every other job. That yeah, exactly. Too. So great. We'll dive more into that right after this. How much do you care about indemnity right now? Probably not a lot. You're still a few years away from really worrying about claims and complaints from patients. But being part of medical protection is about a lot more than just indemnity. We can be there if something goes wrong, but we're also here to help make sure things go right too. We're the only medical defence organisation that protects doctors all over the world. From London to Brisbane, Cork to Cape Town, 300,000 members benefit from our expert advice and support throughout their career. During your years at medical school, your membership is completely free. You'll get training resources that can help you become an even better doctor, plus a dedicated student team there for you when you need it most. And when it comes to your elective, you can trust in our international experience to protect you wherever you choose to go. It's no wonder that 90% of medical students in the UK choose to be part of medical protection. You can find out more at medicalprotection.org. All right, back to the show. Let's start with pronouncing death. So, Declan, imagine that you're at work, you get tapped on the shoulder, maybe, when's your next shift? Um, <laughs> don't know. In three days. <laughs> three days' time <laughs> this yeah. weekend. All right, oh, so imagine... I hope, I hope I don't have to, but okay. Imagine on. one of your colleagues taps you on the shoulder and says... Uh, I'm afraid one of our patients has passed away. Could you please confirm the death? What do you do next? Well, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what I would do is I'd probably go and try find the patient's notes. The mm-hmm. difficulty with me working on call is I only meet people once and then don't see them for two weeks. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't really understand anything about this patient. So I guess I'd review the notes, see what the circumstances were, and see why they're in hospital and any potential reasons for a cause of death. And then I would get my trusty little hat and my handbook and yeah. <laughs> and yeah. give myself a good half an hour. The difficulty would come if the patient's family wanted to stay in the room at the same time as certifying it. So because is that, of is my that lack allowed? of experience. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, f- for my finals, I would always pretend to talk to someone and the, the family are allowed to stay and, mm. and watch you um, certify the death. I didn't know that. <laughs> that was yeah, yeah, they are. Um, so, sorry, I think we should just clarify that you were talking about pronouncing the death oh sorry uh, I, yeah i mean pronouncing death not yeah. certifying yeah, yeah. certifying when you write out the certificate yeah. 
Apologies, this shows how poor of an F1 I am. Um, (laughs) So yeah, they can stay in when pronouncing the death. So, I mean, I would just give myself a bit of time to to go through the motions there's a few different steps which you have to complete yeah so i so i had a quick little look on geeky medic they've actually got some really good resources yeah, yeah, that's around how this I area my finals. recently also started a podcast so yeah, no. Ooh, a rival <laughs> podcast and also geeky the guy who's doing it from uh, norwich uh, some <laughs> rivalry going on right here well though. geeky medics if you're out there we'd love to hear from you <laughs> <laughs> no one <laughs> Anyway, this is the. There's just. A, I've just got a quick list right here of the kind of things. This is for anyone, including me, in the room who's not actually learned about this in med school yet. So, confirm the identity on their wristband. You generally inspect them. You check for signs of respiratory effort, for response to verbal stimuli, for response to painful stimuli, pupillary response to light. Uh, you check for a central pulse, and then you listen to their chest for three minutes although that varies from trust to trust and you listen for heart sounds and breath sounds does that sound familiar to you yeah 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 so it's it's good to know the basics but then uh but then there's practicality in real life like the family being there mm. that sounds like an extra challenge and then and then what happens next why are you looking at me i do not know <laughs> <laughs> um you have to document it yeah um and document it quite rigorously Um, basically the steps that you've just said you have to specifically outline in the patient's notes. And then I would get to that stage and I would find a senior nurse and I'd be like, please, can you tell me what to do? Because <laughs> I don't know what to do from here. Or you'd find yourself a Robert Cast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just need your phone number for a yeah. future reference, please. <laughs> it's a very common call that we get, uh, even it? from the nurses. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Because there's always circumstances. Do we li- leave the lines in? You know, the family are requesting that we take them out. Right. You know, in that kind of circumstance, um, the patient is purging. What do we do about it? What does that mean? What? Uh, if they're leaking fluids, you know, if peop- if they put an emergency ET tube or NG tubes in, there may be fluid that comes out of the lungs or from the stomach, stomach contents, mm. you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. They're asking us what to do. It's odd because a trust policy might not be necessarily the same as a mortuary policy. You always want to do what's best for the patient and what the family requests. That might not, not always be best for the care of the patient once they come down to the mortuary. Mm. So things like the lines in situ, even though it may be um, a death that's expected, once the patient comes down to the mortuary, if the lines have been taken out, that can be lead to considerable purging when they're in our care. So we prefer if the lines are left in in all circumstances. That includes like a, a cannula things yeah, like that as yeah, well as sort yeah, of the all, things. Yeah, all IV lines, yeah. cannula, NG tubes, ET tubes, everything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then from there as well, things like infection status as well is a is a big concern. Yeah. What's an infection status on the on the ward or considered an infection in the ward may not necessarily be one that we would be accustomed to in the mortuary. Things you would document on the ward where the patient would be in isolation, such as VRE or yeah. C. facile and things yeah. like that. Sorry, what does VRE stand for? Vancomycin resistant enterococci. Well, what legend. Basically, the things where they put the, um, the little poster outside yeah. the door and exactly. they say, yeah, you yeah. 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 you've got to put an apron yeah. on yeah. and you've got the sister like glaring at you from the end of the ward making sure you're doing it. Yeah. So once the patient is deceased, those no longer become a factor for mortuary staff or the funeral arrangements. It's only a category three or above. So it would be things like tuberculosis, HIV, Hep B, Hep C, things like that. So, you know, sometimes the family are very concerned when you start saying that the patient is infectious or, you know, we need to put them in a bag. Um, Of course, take those procedures if necessary. But when we check through the notes in the mortuary, we'll always just look for category three and above. 
So someone would take the notes and the patient from the ward down to you with the notes, yeah, and so then you'd look at that, would you? Uh, in in some circumstances, yeah. We do have to, especially if the infection status hasn't been told to us or has been put as a known. It does make our job a little more tedious because we do have to look through the notes and ring wards and, you know, try, try and find from doctors a definite yes or no. And in A&E deaths and things like that, that can That's be very, difficult. yeah, some mm. a bit more difficult. But it's it's information that we're legally obligated to tell the funeral directors. Mm. So we need to have that information. We need to fill out a form, uh, a notification of infection saying that this patient is is infectious or not. And, you know, depending on their own policies, that can have implications for the family. So if we say to the funeral directors that a patient is infectious and it turns out to be not, the funeral directors might not allow an open casket funeral, for instance, because their health and safety guidelines say that if the patient is infectious, we can't have that kind of that funeral arrangement. Mm. So, yeah, it's very it's important. It's quite interesting to hear kind of how our role on the ward could then lead to so many yeah. knock on mm. effects. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you kind of think, oh, I don't know. I don't know if this patient's infectious or not. I'll Doesn't just put matter. unknown. But actually, exactly, yeah. it's so yeah, important. For all yeah. the people yeah. attending the funeral yeah, and for everything. Exactly. Yeah, can, so it's an issue an we have um, at the moment with some of our ICU awards where on the death notice, when they're filling it out digitally, you either put green dot for not infectious or red dot for infectious. If you don't fill it in, it just puts a dot. So we have to go searching for doctors and searching throughout the wards and the notes uh, to find out if that patient is actually infectious or not. Mm. Um, what if the infection status is unknown? If it's unknown, I mean, uh, like in the case of a major trauma call or someone coming in through an A&E, it's to the best of our knowledge. The same as you're doing cremation forms, it's always to the best of your knowledge. So we'll have a look through the notes and blood test results and things like that. And, you know, we can say with good estimation, good certainty that that patient is either infectious or not infectious. So we've talked about how we should leave lines in wherever possible. How we should, like, communicate the information about infection. Yeah. How about, like, that very first step... When you've documented that a patient has died and you've closed the curtains so that the family has some privacy yep. and, or close the door or whatever so mm-hmm. that for the consideration of other patients on the ward as well. Who do you call? What do you do? Like, how do you get the body somewhere else? <laughs> so generally all NHS hospitals will have a portering service. So it'll just be a matter of, you know, ringing the regular porters that you see. The same ones that wheel patients to and from wards and to and from x-ray are the same porters that will bring patients down to the mortuary as well. So once you ring the porter, they'll go usually down to the mortuary to get the concealment trolley. They will already have induction and be able to access the mortuary and know the steps to taking the concealment trolley. It's brought up to the ward. The patient is usually washed and dressed, put in a shroud, never left naked because that is detectable. and then put on the concealment trolley and brought down by the porters. What what makes a concealment trolley different to a normal trolley? So the concealment trolley has a specialised cover over it for the dignity of the people in the hospital. So, you know, you're not carrying a dead person around the place. You know, they're not mm. viewable to the people around. Yeah. Um, obviously, doctors and, you know, staff will know that that's what it's for. Mm. But it's just for the dignity of the patient as well as the dignity of people who are in the hospital as well. So porters move down and is that how people in the mortuary become aware that there's been a death again it varies from policies to policy and you know trust to trust but in general the the patient should be received into 
the mortuary within four hours. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the kind of coroner's guidelines. Mm-hmm. If it's any more than that, we should be given a call, you know, just to say, look, he's they're in a separate room. The family are just saying their last goodbyes before they want to go to the mortuary. Is it OK if we get like an extra you know, hour or something like that? And we much prefer that, especially if it's going to be, you know, a last thing on a Friday evening. It may avoid that out of hours viewing or if there's going to be a coroner involvement, they might not be able to touch that patient. Again, you know, the viewing that they have an hour after it comes down to the mortuary might be behind glass. So it is worth taking that extra, you know, consideration for the family as well. When the patient arrives at the mortuary, Mm -hmm. do you move them straight into those drawers that I described earlier? Or is there something else that happens in between? Yeah, so the the porters will usually do it themselves. They're, They're trained to take the fridge trays out, use the trolleys and, you know, safely transfer the patients over to the trays we would usually then as mortuary staff go in maybe the next morning and we would do a formal id check against Mm. the patient's wristbands ensure that they have wristbands document any property if they have a pacemaker and whether they're infectious Mm. um sometimes as well the measurements as well the funeral directors will ring up and ask us you know what size coffin they would require so we have a, a measurement for that as well so just daily checks but remember we could have anywhere between five and ten patients per day so over a bank holiday weekend we could be looking at measuring 20 to 30 patients every morning mm. so the more information that's correctly provided when they come down it saves us a lot of time then when we're doing the uh, the formal id checks in the mornings mm. as well good to know so yeah. do you guys have any other questions what's the significance of um, people having pacemakers so the pacemakers uh, we need to know about for the cremation forms so a large percentage of patients will have cremations it boils down to the point that they're a lot cheaper than burials really pacemakers especially um, ICDs so ones with an internal defibrillator mm. they can damage crematoriums if they're not removed now we don't necessarily remove them in the mortuary but we must make the funeral directors aware that they do have a pacemaker that it'll need to be removed prior to cremation with the defibrillators, there's a risk of shock if they're not deactivated. So if they have a, a defibrillator in place, we need to contact pacing, make sure that they've been deactivated prior to their release. All right, so you said that like it's very important for the patient's family um, to visit the patient on the ward. Yes. And you can kind of be allowed a bit of extra time on the ward for those purposes. Once the patient's then been moved down to the morgue yeah what's kind of the situation with family visiting then yeah so obviously not all the family may members may be there at the time of death and when the death is verified yeah. some may have to travel distances some you know may want to visit later on that day uh, yeah the big thing i would tell the doctors is to not make assumptions about the cause of death and the circumstances of death when they're speaking to the family um, if they don't know what's going to happen next don't assume that a post-mortem will take place always say look the offices are closed especially if it's out of hours um, we'll speak to bereavement on a Monday you know we'll get all the facts together see what the coroner say things like that you know reassurances but not promises because there are, have been situations in the past where I've had grieving families just happen to come in you know on a weekend out of hours when I have been in the offices for another you know scenario or another donation just expecting that oh you know the doctor on the ward said we can just show up at any time and and have a viewing and when that's not the case it's a case-by-case basis and as APTs and mortuary staff we generally just work the normal working office hours Mm -hmm. nine to five Um, everything outside of that is is done by case-by-case basis. 
So what can we tell patients, you know, if we've just pronounced death and the family there and, and they're asking questions, what's going to happen next? We can tell them a bit about what you've told us now, that the yes. patient will be moved, yeah. that you might have the opportunity to see them. Usually the the best team to talk to are the bereavement team directly. They, mm. they have the experience, they have the knowledge mm. and they have all the booklets and leaflets and all the information that will be going ahead. So usually when doctors go to fill out the the certificate, they are there with the bereavement team helping them. So, you know, they'll get a sense of, you know, the circumstances of death, you know, if there's coroner involvement. And this is all stuff that then they can put back to the family and say, look, the doctor has certified the death or they don't know the cause of death. So they're putting it as unknown. Um, it'll be assigned a coroner's officer mm-hmm. and then we'll wait to hear back, um, you know, from them after that. So at bedside, it's perhaps just best to say your loved one is going to be moved. Yes. And after that, You'll be in touch with the bereavement officers yeah, to be able yeah. to give you a much better picture about yeah, what's exactly. coming. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, you can make it personally. You can bring them to the bereavement team or, you yeah. know, give them the direct number of the bereavement office. Yeah. You know, for mortuary staff and bereavement, we're always there to help. You know, we can always answer any questions about, you know, the circumstances or things like that or the, the next, the procedure after that. Especially when there's coroner's involvement, it can get quite difficult to explain to family you know, I have to have this death transferred to the coroner and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's good to liaise with bereavement and even mortuary staff to know the best way to explain it to family. Hmm. All right. So the next logical step is to discuss everything that we would need to do as doctors once the patient has been moved to the, to the mortuary. Yes. But before we go there, can I just take a moment to say how much... I appreciate every single Sharp Scratch listener. I'm just absolutely buzzing that there's thousands of you listening to us every episode. And so this is a little thank you gift from Sharp Scratch and On Examination. If you've not heard of it, On Examination is a question bank for medical exams. Uh, And I'm in fifth year now, so I rely heavily on the medical student finals bank. What I'd wish I'd known is that On Examination's got tailored question banks for first year medical students as well. Um, And now On Examination is giving all of us a special Sharp Scratch discount of 15%. So, all first years listening, you could get the specific question bank for first year med students for three months and you'll pay £8.50 instead of ten quid. And the same goes for all student exams, plus the MRCP. So, head to the student section of onexamination.com, select your exam and enter sharp scratch at the checkout for a 15% discount. That's 15% off on examination with a promo code of sharp scratch, all caps, no spaces. So we've discussed pronouncing death, uh, what happens next, and now we're on to certifying death. Is yes. that right? Yeah. So to help us with this, Anna here, she called up Susan Mullane, who's a bereavement office manager. Let's hear At from the her. Princess Royal, so nice. you can all guess how I got in touch with her. <laughs> <laughs> so the role of a bereavement officer is basically just to issue the certificate to the families. So we would get in touch with the doctors, get the paperwork ready to hand over to the families. As a new doctor, the main reason you would come to the bereavement office would be to issue the certificates. Our role in the office is to locate the doctors that have looked after the patient. And that can be any doctor that has looked after the patient within the last 14 days. Um, It doesn't have to be the last doctor. It can be anybody on the team that has seen that patient. Uh, So we would get in touch with them, explain that we need the certificate issued. 
uh, and that's probably the first time that they will ever come to our office so it will all be very new um, but obviously we would explain to them how how it works what they need to do they're not just sort of you know sat down and, and given all the forms we've got um, examples that they can go through and there's always a couple of members of staff here to help them uh, we then talk them through it they do a MCCD which is the medical cause of death and if it's going to be a cremation they would do a cremation paper as well um, it looks a bit daunting when you first come because it looks quite complicated but it actually really isn't the main thing is to have the cause of death clear um, and w which we can help with because although you know the cause of death not all wording would pass through the registrar's office um, a strange thing is it's different in different areas so if a doctor has worked in one area and that registrar's office may accept different wording so it's quite important to speak to us and you know to um, to talk to us and to discuss what they're going to put Right, so the way a junior doctor can make our life is easier is very, very simple. If when, when we call you, we don't expect you to come at that moment. So when we call you, if you could just let us know that you're in, first of all, and that you are aware and that you could come down later, that would be such a help because if we don't know, if you sort of ignore your belief and think, oh, I'll, I'll ring later, I'll ring later, we don't know you're in because we don't have your rotors. And then we have to then try another doctor and another doctor or go to the consultant Sultan. So to make our life easier, if you could just let us know you're in, you're aware it needs to be done and that you'll be down later, that would be absolutely great. And, and also just to be aware of, it's you know, if we're pestering you to come down, it's not really for us, it's for the families because until they come to us, they can't register, they can't book a funeral and they can't move on. So the sooner you get here, the better for everybody. And yeah, I remember definitely. going to meet Susan when I was doing this project and um, she showed me all of the, they have like laminated examples um, of the way you're supposed to do things and I found that really reassuring like, okay, I'm not just going to be like left on my own to do something yeah. like so much else seems to be. Actually, yeah, yeah. there are people there for, for support. Yeah. And it's nice to know that people like you, Robert, are there as well. So Yeah, so yeah. even in our mortuary, we have a cremation, cremation form cheat sheet. So the same, it's laminated, highlights all the questions, tell you what's expected for each answer, what we need mm -hmm. to know. Um, everything's there, ready to pay. It looks arduous because it's about, you know, six pages long, but it is, you know, it's step by step. We go through it with you if you have any concerns and, you know, you're getting paid to do it as well. So <laughs> you have to make sure you come down. Yeah, we haven't discussed that Hang yet. On. Sorry, did you say you get paid to do... Cremation forms. Cremation forms. Cremation yes. forms, yeah. And cremation forms are the ones that are six pages long. Yes. I got a bit confused there because I thought the certificates that I've seen no. <laughs> just one fancy yeah. page, whereas cremation forms are six yeah. pages. But you don't get paid extra for doing a death no, certification. No, That's but just it's, part again, of it's part of the duty of care. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So listening to that bereavement officer, obviously they do the medical cause of death certificate and the cremation forms and bereavement. Ours is kind of a different scenario, which some trusts have where the bereavement and mortuary are kind of separate. And as such, you know, you do the MCCD on one side and you do the cremation forms in another. It's that breakdown in between that kind of sometimes causes issues. Whereas if you're filling the uh, medical certificate in bereavement, and you don't go down to the mortuary to do the cremation forms, you know, pretty much straight away. 
it can be a very arduous task tra- tracking down young doctors because you do rotations, you yeah. know, ward from ward, different yeah. bleeps, different numbers, day shifts, night shifts. It can start to get into the weeks before cremation forms are completed and that delays and cancels funerals. Mm. So it's mm. it's very important. No, that's no good at all. Yeah. yeah. So what's the, um, what are the differences are there between a cremation form and a death certificate? So we mentioned the difference in number of pages. Yeah. You get paid for one, <laughs> yeah. e- paid extra for one, yes. rather. Yeah. So the... The death certificate is used to register, officially register the death. So the death certificate is taken to a registry office and in exchange for that, the family will receive usually what we call a green form, which is a a certificate of burial or cremation. And then they then use that. uh, It's given to the funeral directors so that they can officially be burial or cremated. And we know that there's no other circumstances or no, um, no investigation needed for that death. Um, so that's what we use as mortuary staff then to know that we can formally release the patient for funeral. So you've mentioned the coroner a few yes, times in yeah. this conversation. Yeah. What is a coroner? So coroner is basically a, a lawyer with medical training. Um, they don't necessarily have to be trained in both, but you'll find that, that a lot of coroners, not generally coroner, coroner's officers, but the coroner themselves are medically legally trained uh, the coroner's officers are just the ones who handle the cases in the first instance and they would decide then whether more investigation is needed whether the circumstances uh, require an inquest or if the the death um, can be considered you know uh, expected or natural and that no further investigation is needed or no post-mortem is needed and how as f1 doctors <laughs> might we figure out if we're not particularly confident yet, figure out whether we need to call a coroner or not. Yeah. Is it the kind of thing where if you're not sure, you just give him a ring, just see? Or yeah, you is, can do. Should you not um, bother them? Ring actually. the coroner on his like direct line. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, <All right>. sir. <laughs> oh, old lady. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, right. myself right well, the, the coroner's officers are really helpful. The bereavement staff and the mortuary staff will have very good knowledge of cases that will need to. So you can always ask them for, you know, their opinions. Um, uh, actually, just this weekend, the chief coroner has released uh, new guidelines with regards to what kind of deaths need to be reported to the coroner's office. That would be things like traumatic injuries, substance abuse, environmental factors that would be due, due to uh, working conditions, the welfare and care of the patient if there's neglect. Um, so there is a specific list of criteria where the death must be reported to the coroner. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a full investigation and post-mortem must take place. It just means that the coroner needs to be aware that, you know, there are circumstances that that may have contributed to the death. So when you ring the coroner, the coroner can tell you ringing me is enough or that further action is needed. Yeah. Right. So they're trying to move away from actually ringing the coroner's officers again in these new guidelines that have just been doing it over the weekend. It's uh, it's a formal written request to the coroner to have the death certified, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And in the UK, we've got this sort of relatively recently established role of medical examiner's officers. Have you been working with them? Yes. (laughs) Well, I haven't. It hasn't come in on our trust yet, but I've been kind of training to know when it does come into effect, what what will be expected. I feel that, you know, mortuary and bereavement staff have a unique perspective because we've been dealing with it for so long. Yeah. Um, So I feel that maybe mortuary and bereavement staff may become medical examiner officers as well, kind Mm -hmm. of part time and helping Mm -hmm. because that's what we kind of do on a general basis anyway. So the medical examiner system will come into a non-statutory 
Zimbabwe by March 2020. So I have no idea what non-statutory means. <laughs> <laughs> so no it won't be a legal requirement. Exam, right? Okay, um, not compulsory. Yeah, yet. not yeah. compulsory. But some places already have. Oh yeah, it's yeah. been it's been there for a few years. It's been around the UK yeah. for a few years. And Anna, now... you've actually had the chance to talk to one, haven't you? Yes, this is how I know that some places yeah. already <laughs> have them. Yeah. Um, I don't have yeah. a clue what one is. Let's hear from one now. Hear from really lovely Daisy. My name is Daisy Shale. I'm a medical examiner's officer in Sheffield. The role of the medical examiner's officer is to assist the medical examiner with certain elements of scrutiny. And that is the scrutiny of the medical records and the circumstances of death. The idea is that the medical examiner's office will review every death that isn't investigated by a coroner. Really, that the coroner's office will deal with the investigation where there is cause to suspect that there is something unnatural or unusual about the case. The medical examiner's office will review cases where it would appear as though everything has been handled correctly and has been done appropriately, but we're there to just make sure that 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 is actually the case. The role of the medical examiner came about after Harold Shipman, which was nearly 20 years ago now, I think 25 years ago, where the high GP was convicted of murdering over 200 of his patients. And the recommendations that came out of the Loose Report and the Shipman Inquiry was that there needed to be some way of making sure that what went on the certificate was a true reflection of what somebody had died from and also to make sure that there hadn't been any malpractice, any negligence or any errors or omissions with, with clinical care during somebody's last illness. If you've looked after a patient, say you did the on-call shift overnight and you were concerned about the way the patient had been managed or in, in the way that you were alerted to the patient, you could then come to the medical examiner's office and have a chat with this. And, and quite frequently junior doctors do. They'll call in two or three days later and they'll say, I was looking after a lady on uh, Ward 1. I think she's she's died and um, we clarify that yes they have and, and then they will express some concerns or some worries that they have. Sometimes we can alleviate those concerns, we can talk them through, we can get a medical examiner to sit down and go through the records with them and go through what's happened and it actually alleviates any worry or, or concerns that they have. And sometimes the junior doctors haven't wanted to write something explicitly in the notes that they have got concerns because there's that worry of being too direct in the medical records, but they want to be able to come and explain it to somebody and make sure that they haven't missed anything or that they need to follow anything up. If you have any concerns or any worries, no matter how small or trivial you might think they are, please come and see us and, and tell us. Because if we don't know about them, we can't act on them. At least if you've told us about any worries that you've got, we, we can at least look into them. We, we are aware of them. With cases that need reporting to the coroner, just because a case needs reporting doesn't mean that somebody has done anything wrong. There are certain things that by law, now as of the 1st of October, there is now a statutory requirement to report certain cases to the coroner. The, the coroner isn't there to pass judgment. They're there to investigate the death. They need to be told the full facts. The coroner's officers and the coroner can only really go on what you as junior doctors are telling them. 
So make sure that they get that full information, that full story. If they don't have the full information, the full story, they can't make the right decision. So now we know yet another source of support for Declan the first time he has to certify and for me and Anna when we yeah, get around to this I'm in a couple of years time. Yeah, I'm quite reassured actually yeah. that I'm not going to be like left on my own because yeah. you seem to just be left on your own to do so many things when you start as an F1. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of glad that this isn't one of those things because, yeah. you, you know. You get a lot of duties just sent off to you and yeah. you know, you're the F1 and you can, you can so go do the It's so important, isn't yeah. it, to make sure the knock-on effect of you maybe doing something a little bit wrong just because you don't really know how to do it can be like so enormous for the families of people who have died and yeah. it's not what you would want to happen to one of your loved ones so we shouldn't want it to happen to any of our patients in the at the end of the day yeah so we've talked to like everything we've talked about so far though i've noticed has been in a hospital setting mm-hmm. and i was just wondering because i know that gps sometimes have to go out into the community to pronounce death or to confirm death do they also have access to some kind of support do you know um i'm not too sure to be honest um I mean, even if a person dies in the community and they come to to certify a death, they still need to go to a mortuary, whether it be a community mortuary, public mortuary, Mm. um, you know, it'll be whatever is closest and whatever's in that in that borough, if we're talking about London. Mm. Um, So I guess there is always support there for them. Um, For community deaths, there is obviously a lot of coroner's involvement because generally the circumstances aren't known. Um, So I think with GPs, uh, it's good to liaise with the hospitals themselves and the coroner's officers and they can give it help and advice in that case as well. Mm. So a patient, say they had a planned death at home, mm. they would never just go directly to like the funeral directors or they would, uh, they would have to like go via a mortuary? Yeah, well, again, it's it's about circumstance and uh, I mean, back home in Ireland, it's it's very a regular occurrence for a person to, to die at home and not have to mm. go to a mortuary. But in London, it does seem the case if there's a death in the community, especially if if it's someone who's just been found or had a an out of hospital cardiac arrest. Obviously, there's mm. an investigation that needs to happen. Um, so that person needs to be stored somewhere. So generally, they will mm. go to a mortuary while the proceedings are taking place. But then that might vary in other places. In the exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's definitely uh, different across yeah. the country. Yeah. So let's wind up, guys. Like, What are you going to take away from today? So I guess just find my mortuary and find my bereavement office like in whatever hospital I'm, I start working at when I qualify. Yeah, it's good. And just remember the duty of care doesn't end because the patient has passed away. Yeah. The mortuary staff are always happy. Even if you're coming off a night shift, we understand you're tired, you have other patients, but we'll always come. We'll have coffee and biscuits ready. We'll help you through the form. There's no Ooh. problems. Free so food. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> free food at the very just end of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how about you, Declan? Are you feeling how are you feeling about having to do this uh, in the next year at some point? Yeah, um, yeah, I'm feeling a lot more confident, really. Uh, to be honest, before starting this, I had very little idea. Oh, it was obvious. What I was going to be doing. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I mean, just the amount of support is, is great because it's something that I was worried about. Because if you mess it up, then the implications can be so big. Yeah, of course. So it's nice to know that yeah. everyone is so kind and welcoming <laughs> um, and will walk me through it at least yeah. for the first few times especially with the ME system coming in I mean I think doctors at the moment feel that they're they're very parted from the family when regards you know writing the cause of death because yeah. the family will only get the death certificate they won't really be explained why how, how they've come to that conclusion mm. the ME system you will sit that they will sit down with the family they'll go look 
the doctor has written this is the cause of death are you happy with that do you have any concerns you know this is why they put that so yeah it should be a really good oh, really so that good sounds system. like a really good like outcome of yes the medical yeah there's a, a far more thing. far more involvement from the family so um i guess one last one final thing i'd like to say is that for anyone who's in a similar position to me that didn't know much about those steps you need to take to pronounce and certify death, then Geeky Medics has got really good um, resources for those kind of details. So I would recommend that you look at those if you feel like we've missed out that kind of detail in this episode. Mm. So that's all from us on Sharp Scratch today. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from us then subscribe to Sharp Scratch wherever you get your podcasts and in two weeks time you'll get our next episode straight to your phone and while you're waiting do check us out on social media we're BMJ Student on Twitter Facebook and Instagram please let us know what you think about the podcast using the hashtag Sharp Scratch because we would love to hear your ideas for what we should cover later on in the season and to hear what you think about the podcast in general it's also so helpful to us if you can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it really does help other, other students find the show Next time, we'll be talking about social media. Until then, goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye. (laughs) Bye.